Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. We all know the feeling, and it may be different for each one of us, but I I feel confident saying we all know the feeling. The feeling of that wave of emotion that's somewhere behind us, kind of over here, that we don't really want to deal with, so we'll just ignore it or avoid it. Some of us really like to touch it and feel lots of things really strongly and then run away from it, but we all know that feeling, whatever that predominant thing is for you. Maybe it's, it's anger that boils like molten fire inside of you. And no matter how hard you try to keep it trapped down, it just leaks out in smoky words that burn the people around you. Or maybe for you, it's grief that, that feels like it, it flows through you like the undertow of the currents just threatening to pull you under at any moment. And you're just not sure that the next moment your head's still gonna be above water. Maybe for you, it's anxiety and, and worry, these, these waves of of concern and anxiety that come crashing over you, unrelenting a million little things you can worry about but have no control over, and yet the waves just keep coming. Sometimes it feels like a crushing weight or a burning shame or maybe we'd even call it a tormented spirit. What if the answer to all of that, to whatever that is for you, whatever that impending wave of emotion is for you, what if the answer to all of it is simply peace? Not not easily, not obviously maybe, but, but simply, what if the answer to everything that boils and roils inside of us is simply peace? And what if that peace is just as terrifying as the pain we're trying to avoid? What if that peace is somehow just as scary as that emotion, that feeling, that overwhelm that we're trying to run from? What do we do if the answer is peace and the peace is just as overwhelming? Do you ever wonder why people follow Jesus? Like, why would somebody do that? Which I get is kind of a strange question to ask in church. But do you ever wonder why 
somebody would give up everything to live a life that only makes sense if the gospel is true? Or do you ever read through the Bible or hear Bible stories and you hear people's reactions and they're, they're following what God told them to do or they're following after Jesus and you just wonder why? I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who asks this question. Maybe I ask it more than most just because I am fascinated by what makes people tick by why we do the things that we do and why people would choose to do something that often makes no sense is fascinating to me. Whether that's for good things or bad things, why, why do people make the choices they make? Why do people choose to give their life over to Jesus? What are they hoping to find? I think the motivation is different for all of us and the things we choose to do. I think the reasons that we choose to follow Jesus are, I'm sure, sometimes, often, some part of it is, is very altruistic. It's very others-oriented. Well, this is just the truth, and this is a truth I want to share with people, and so I'll follow Jesus with my life. I think when we initially follow Jesus, I think for just about everybody, there is some part of selfishness to it. And it sounds a little weird, but we just celebrated Jesus's love and forgiveness for us. And when you realize that that is there and available to you and that it's true, well, yeah, I want some of that. Sure. And, and as I read through scripture, I, I wonder what people were looking for when they set out to follow after Jesus. We've been reading through the New Testament together as a church uh, since the beginning of June. And if you wanna hop on that train now, it is never too late. Uh, we just finished Luke 18 today. So far, we have read from three authors, three different accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And while we don't know exactly why they chose to follow Jesus, knowing what we do know about them and the things that they chose to write about about Jesus. I think we can make some educated guesses. Matthew gave up everything to follow Jesus. It appears he was super fascinated and drawn into how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. So Matthew grew up Jewish with the Jewish scripture as his truth. And there are prophetic words spoken there of a coming Messiah, a coming savior. And again and again and again in his account of Jesus, he wants to make sure that his readers, and he wrote to people who grew up like he did, he wants to make sure they, they know, hey, if you believe these words you grew up with, if you believe these scriptures, here's the guy we've been waiting for. Here's all the prophecies that point to Jesus being the savior we were promised. Mark seems to be particularly drawn to the miracles of Jesus, the action and activity of Jesus, the impact he makes in the world around him. Over and over, stories of Jesus' miraculous work. Mark appears to have given his life to following Jesus and wants to tell everybody about it because what he saw from Jesus changed the way he saw the world. Now, Luke did not grow up Jesus like Jesus did not grow up Jewish 
you know what I meant, did not grow up Jewish like Matthew and Mark did. He was an outsider who we don't think actually followed Jesus during Jesus's earthly ministry. He came later after Jesus's death and resurrection. And yet there was something he found in the story, the truth of Jesus that was so compelling to him that he wanted to give his life to studying it, to, to discovering more and more about how Jesus, who Jesus is. And as he gave his life over to Jesus and fell in line with the family of people following after Jesus, he discovered that he was welcomed in and accepted and loved by Jesus and by the people following Jesus. And he wants other people to know that they can be welcomed in and loved. And throughout his gospel account, he's constantly referring to outsiders, making the point that they are drawn in It's Luke's Christmas account that gives us the story of some wise men from way, way outside who get to come in and be wrapped into the story and welcomed at the feet of Jesus. He's the one constantly including outside social outcast people showing how Jesus healed them and loved them and welcomed them in. He even brings up stories of Roman officers, the people oppressing the Jews, the people who were, were keeping the inside there and the outside here and, and brings up stories of how they're commended for their faith and how Jesus even welcomes them in to the story, welcomes them in to be loved and accepted. It's Luke who, in what's now Luke chapter eight, stops the narrative that he's writing just to point out that there were women following after Jesus and even financing his ministry. Women who in their society would have been seen as second-class citizens. And and Luke wants to stop and say, hey, there's no second class here. We are brought in to be equal and together, loved and accepted and welcomed in. No matter if somebody looks different or sounds different like he did, We're welcomed in. So Luke chapter eight is where we're gonna dive in to his gospel this morning. Starting in verse one, he says, soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Joanna, we know nothing else about. But personally, I am super curious why she would leave her comfortable life in the palace where she literally had the palace's purse strings to follow after Jesus and support his ministry. What is it she was hoping to find? What peace, what joy, what hope, what story did she want to be a part of? 
So she follows Jesus on this tour through nearby villages and towns, and, and Luke chapter 8 takes us, Luke takes us on this tour. And he starts with a couple of uh, parables and a story designed to be all about the need to obey the words of Jesus. Parables and a story reminding us or where Jesus is teaching us that the wise thing to do would to be, to be what, to obey what he says. And then Luke fills in some stories, some miraculous healings, some miracle stories after that to show that it's not just people who obey Jesus, but nature and demons and bodies and even death obey the commands of Jesus. So we're gonna dive into those stories, skipping ahead in chapter eight to verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. As they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap But soon a fierce storm came down on the lake. The boat was filling with water and they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we're going to drown. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Suddenly the storm stopped and all was calm. Then he asked them, where is your faith? The disciples were terrified and amazed. Who is this man, they asked each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and waves obey him. They were terrified of the storm. Jesus, we're gonna die. And so he gives them peace in the midst of the storm. And then they're terrified of the peace. I mean, shouldn't they be celebrating? Like, hugging each other, high-fiving, jumping up and down, careful not to rock the boat too much. Like, this is awesome. We're gonna live. This is great. No, they're terrified. Next story. Next verse. Verse 26. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. Then he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. This spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness completely under the demon's power. Okay, pause. I'll pause here just to point out that he was too powerful even for chains, but so afraid in the presence of Jesus. He shrieked before Jesus even said a word. We would have this little exchange where he says, why are you torturing me? Because Jesus starts to command the demon to come out. And there's a little more back and forth that we'll talk about in a second. 
But the first thing he does when he sees Jesus, when he recognizes that Jesus is there, is he shrieks in terror. Some of us need to remember that recognizing the presence of Jesus in our lives is enough to disrupt the war in our hearts and minds. Recognizing the presence of Jesus in your life is enough to disrupt the war in your heart and mind. To disrupt that wave of emotion that's crashing over you or the spiral of thought and feeling that you're going down. Now, I am not saying that recognizing the presence of Jesus instantly cures you. It didn't for this man. There was a whole exchange with Jesus he had to have. And I'm not saying that the right faith or magic words will make everything better. What I'm saying is that we get caught up in certain pathways and patterns of thought and feeling and recognizing the presence of Jesus in our lives. Jesus who promised that he would always be with us, that recognizing that he's there is enough to disrupt that spiral of thought or emotion you may find yourself in. And I don't know if that analogy works for you. It, it's the one that works for me and the way my thought pattern works. The pathways I get stuck on is my thoughts start spiraling and I'm going around and around and around the same issue and I'm never really touching it. I'm not really addressing it or solving it. I'm just thinking and feeling and going around and around and spiraling downward until I don't even remember what caused me to spiral in the first place. And I need to remember that recognizing Jesus' presence with me is enough to disrupt that spiral. That whatever pattern or pathway your thoughts and emotions get stuck in, recognizing the presence of Jesus can help disrupt that war raging inside of you or around you. Now, how much you like that disruption depends very much on how terrifying you find that disruption. The demon-possessed man, or the demons within him, found it terrifying. I know in, in my life and journey of addiction that there have been many times where I have cried out to Jesus, would you please just take this away? Just the temptations, the feelings, the opportunity, just take it all away. And I know some people have cried out that prayer and he has answered it in miraculous ways and that's so, so good. And there are times when I truly, really want that. And there are other times when I recognize that if Jesus actually takes it all away, then the thing that I'm looking to for comfort the thing that I'm looking to to cope, well, that's gonna get taken away and that's scary. And I don't know what lies on the other side of having to actually deal with that wave of emotion I've been ignoring and avoiding. So I find that disruption terrifying and now all of a sudden I'm not so sure I want it. 
the presence of Jesus is enough to disrupt the patterns that we get stuck in. How much we desperately desire and want and are open to that disruption and the peace he brings depends a great deal on how terrifying we find that disruption. As Luke continues the story of this demon terrified by the presence of Jesus, there is this back and forth between Jesus and the demon that is, frankly, one of the strangest stories in Scripture. Where they go back and forth. I don't know why Jesus is negotiating with the demons, but they want to be thrown into a herd of pigs, and, and so Jesus lets them go into the pigs. And, and I'm saying them because it's not just one demon. It turns out there's, there's many, many demons in this man. And they go into this herd of pigs, and then the herd of pigs makes like lemmings, and they all run off the cliff, and they die. And it's, and it, it's just weird. And I'm not going to dig into some of the research behind why the pigs were there and why did Jesus put it. It really is really interesting, though. And I don't think this is just for Bible nerds. Like, I think it's really, it's a weird story, and it's interesting, the history behind why it may have happened. So uh, you can research that on your own. Uh, good stuff. Dig into it. But the end of this exchange is a gone demons from this man and a bunch of dead pigs and some herdsmen of these pigs going, that was weird. Like I, that was crazy. And we just lost all our livelihood and we don't know what to do. And they go running from the place and we're, we're gonna pick up the story there. So by now we're in verse uh, 34 of Luke chapter eight. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane. And they all jumped up and down in celebration because this man was freed from his demons. No. It says they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone for a great wave of fear swept over them. So Jesus got into the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. The guy was tortured and is completely better. And they're more afraid than excited. Waves calm, demon-possessed man calm, people terrified. One more story. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, with constant menstruating, and she could find no cure. 
Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it. And Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for, when I, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And then, even though that disruption slowed him down enough that Jairus' daughter died before he could get to her, he walks into Jairus' house, tells the people that she was simply sleeping. They laugh at him. And then he takes her by the hand and he brings her back to life. Storm stopped. Torture stopped. Bleeding stopped. Death stopped. People trembling, afraid, and terrified. We'd like to think that we want all the Jesus peace we can get. Like, bring it on. Like, bring it on. I, I, I just want some peace in the midst of whatever it is that's going on in our lives. If only I could get some peace. And yet we look for peace in all kinds of other places, in addictions, in accomplishments, in achieving some status or goal. If I could just have this thing, if I could just do that, if I could just prove to those people who doubt me that I can, well, then, then I'll be at peace. Then I'll be settled. Then I'll feel whole. Jesus offers us his peace, holy, whole, complete peace. And we still go looking for it elsewhere. Not because it's not available. He offers it to us. So why do we resist peace? Why do we resist? Does it, does it terrify us? Do we think that this Jesus peace is just too hard, too impossible? If you feel like you are the only one who keeps looking for peace in all the other places, who keeps turning to cheap substitutes to try to fill in the gaps in your life. Who's not so sure you want to accept Jesus' peace because you're not sure what, is, what other strings are attached. I want you to know that you are not alone. There are many of us who do this. Why? Why do we resist. Three reasons I see reflected in, in Luke 8. Sometimes we're more comfortable with what we know 
than the, G, the change Jesus has for us. Sometimes we're more comfortable with what we know than the change Jesus has for us. The people were more comfortable with the deranged man frightening their children than with a man suddenly made sane. At least crazy was known. Some of the disciples were fishermen. They knew their way around a boat. They knew sailing and bailing buckets and and the tricks of the trade. I mean, why ask Jesus? He's just a carpenter. We know waves. We know boats. You might be miserable, but at least it's familiar. You might be stuck in that addiction or in that loop of lies that won't let go or in that soul-sucking job you can't figure out how to step out of, but at least it's familiar. You might be angry all the time and ruining all of your relationships, but, but who would you be if you're not the guy who intimidates people? Who would you be if you can't manipulate your way into what you want? At least it's familiar. We like known. We like known. It's comfortable. We may like the idea of the miraculous, but the miraculous by its very nature is uncontrollable and beyond our understanding. And we like controlled and known. Sometimes we're more comfortable with the power against us than the power of Jesus for us. We're more comfortable with the the powers we keep running up against than we are with the miraculous that Jesus wants to bring into our lives. The disciples knew the waves. They'd seen those before. And yes, they frightened them. The sudden calm that had no risk of death terrified them as well because they'd never seen that before. The people of the village knew to avoid the graveyard. They, they knew he couldn't be chained down, but, but if we just avoid the graveyard and the tombs that he's sleeping in, we'll be all right. We can do that. The power of Jesus, though, they weren't even willing to avoid that. That needed to go away. Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you around. The woman knew of bleeding. She knew her place in society, downgraded for being a woman, outcast for her bleeding. She knew she shouldn't be around people and she trembled because she was sure some punishment was coming to her. We know discouragement. We know betrayal and loss and hurt. We know temptations and we turn to them like old friends. We know the numbness, and we welcome it in. And sure, that's a total perversion of all the emotions that God gave you, but, but at least it kind of feels like peace. Sometimes we're more comfortable with the pain that we're experiencing 
than the risk of following Jesus. Sometimes we're more comfortable with the pain we're living in than the risk of following Jesus to something better. The people of the graveyard would rather have their nightmares come to life on the outskirts of town than be in the presence of miraculous power. The disciples somehow decided that dealing with the storm, at least for a while on their own, was better than waking up Jesus. Sometimes we'll take the numbness that leaves us empty over the peace that Jesus offers to fill us with. We'll take the anger and destruction over the calm he extends to us. We'll take another empty bottle, another burnout day at work, another shattered dream over the peace that God has promised to give us. The woman could have decided to keep bleeding, but she didn't. Jairus could have watched his daughter die rather than humiliate himself by begging this self-proclaimed rabbi for help. The disciples would later say, Jesus, where else could we go? You're the one. We follow you. So how do we make that turn? How do we embrace the gift of peace that we're offered? Three ideas that overlap a little on each other. The first is to look for Jesus. To look for Jesus. I don't know about you, but I spend so much time staring at the storms and worrying about the graveyard and complaining about the bleeding instead of looking for Jesus. Look for where Jesus is. Look for where he is at work and then go there. In the midst of the job that you don't wanna be at anymore, what might God be doing in you and in the people around you? What might he be doing through you? in the emotional or relational storm that is crashing around you in your home or your family or the world around you? Where is Jesus in the midst of that? He has promised that he is there. He is there. A similar way to embrace peace is to look for the good to look for the good, that in the tangled mess of everything going on around you, to look for the one string in that jumbled pile of strings that looks good and to grab it and to hold on to it and to pull and to drag yourself along it. Because if there is good in the midst of the things you're going through, as you pull on that string, you're gonna find Jesus at the other end of it. Jesus who has promised to work all of those strings for good, for you, for the world around you. Look for Jesus, look for the good, and be willing to reach out. Reach out. Like the woman who touched the hem of his cloak If we're going to 
find and take and be open to the peace that Jesus gives us in the midst of our life's storms, we're going to need to be willing to reach out. And all of this circles back to the first one, that we're looking for Jesus, that we're reaching out to him, that we're seeing the good that he is up to, that we're intentionally spending time with him and his truth, that we're reaching out for truth and against the lies that we believe and that drag us into spirals, that we're willing to reach out and take the risk of actually following Jesus, that we're willing to risk some vulnerability and enter into some sort of community with other people to confess, to be strengthened, to minister to and love and serve, And I know that somewhere in some of you is a, oh, no, no, no. See, when I get involved with people, that's when I get hurt. Yep, I know. Just about every hurt, if not every hurt, that you can trace in your life goes back to people. But every good, every healing moment, every sense of being loved, every sense of purpose that you have is also tied back to the work of God through a community of people around you. So you may have to reach out in some vulnerability to other people to say, hey, here's this loop I keep getting stuck in. If you don't know who to reach out to, reach out to me. I'm easy to contact. And sad to say, I know those loops And I'm glad to say I know grace. You don't want to talk to me. You don't want to talk to anybody you know. Pay somebody. Find a counselor, a therapist. Talk to somebody. There is no shame or problem in that. Reach out. And then we reach out to Jesus. We spend intentional time with him. We're reading through the New Testament this summer, not to check off some boxes or, or say that we've accomplished it, but to get in the practice of actually spending time with Jesus. And some of you are discovering that actually three chapters of reading a day is getting in the way. You're like, well, I'm, I'm checking off the boxes, but I, I'm, I'm not actually spending time with Jesus. Then stop reading the chapters. <laughs> We definitely are not trying to set up a situation where we're like, well, I gotta check the boxes. Like, sorry, Jesus, I couldn't talk to you today. I gotta go to work. Like, like, read a chapter. Do something different. Spend time with Jesus. The idea is that we are all getting into the practice of intentionally spending time with and reaching out to Jesus, of getting our mindset on, Jesus, where are you in this story? Where is your truth in my life? What are the true things that you say about me? As I go through my day, how can I be on the lookout for where you are at work? And we go through the day and we look for Jesus and we look for the good and we look for where he is offering us moments and seasons of peace. And we open ourselves to him and the peace he gives us in the midst of the chaos and the storms and the graveyards and the shadow of death and dying. We open ourselves to him and the peace that may be terrifying, but is a perfect peace. It's so, so good. And is the answer to all that stirs 
inside of you. This week, let's open ourselves to that peace. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you that you have promised to be present with us everywhere. That you are here. That you are with us as we go. That you are offering us real, true peace. And so Father, we come confessing that we have tried cheap substitutes. That we have tried to do it on our own. That we've tried to figure out a way to make it happen in the way that feels most comfortable for us. God, in whatever ways that we continue to do that, would you break down the walls that we put up to defend ourselves? Would you break down the walls that we put up because we're not sure that we want our comfort zone being taken away? God, would you break down the lies that we believe about who we are and what we don't deserve? Would you remind us of the death and resurrection of Jesus that says that we are forgiven and loved and offered new life and new hope and given peace. Father, in the midst of all that scares us, would you give us your hope, your joy, your love, your grace, and your peace. May you do those things in us so you can do them through us that your love and hope and joy and grace and peace would mark our relationships and would spread in our community, that we would be able to pass on your peace to the world around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.